How many of you love getting gifts? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's something about getting gifts, especially if they're gifts that you really want, that tends to put a smile on your face and uh, bring a little bit of joy to your life, maybe, right? Hey, my name is Scott, and I'm the lead pastor here at The Bridge, and The Bridge is actually a, a one church that meets in two locations. This is our Sugarland campus, and we have a campus that meets in the Regal Theater on 99, the Grand Parkway. And in 2020, next year, we're planning to launch a third campus in the Fulcher area, and so we're excited about that. But I'm excited for you guys to be here today as we're in the third week of our series, that guitar fell, third week of our series, uh, Joyride. And this is a series that we've been talking about where there was a guy named Paul, or the Apostle Paul, and he writes a letter to these Christians in the first century and, and basically is telling them that these, these Christians, they lived in a, a place called Philippi, which is a, in ancient Greece. And he's writing to them about this whole concept of joy. And he's saying, listen, you can have such joy in your life that it feels like a joy ride every day of your life. Now, the circumstances that Paul writes out of, uh, he is in a Roman prison. And he is chained to a Roman guard 24-7. So, so just imagine there is someone that you are so connected to that they know every intimate detail of your life 24-7. Well, these are the circumstances that Paul is in as he writes this letter to these Christians. And he's telling them, listen, regardless of the circumstances of your life, you really can have joy because joy is not based on the things that happen to you. It's not based on your circumstances, but it comes from a place that's much deeper. And today, the passage we're going to look at, it's really a passage where it gives us, I believe, Paul's going to give us the key to what great relationships really are about and also the key to what looks like how to live a, a, a life that's just filled with joy. Um, have you ever thought about like if you were to make up a soundtrack of your life just at every stage along the way as you grew up, what that soundtrack might look like, what songs might be included in your life? Maybe it's just me. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, you think about, you know, you might have started off with the wheels of the bus go round and round and round. And then all of a sudden it went to baby shark, do, 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 right? And a hakuna matata. What a wonderful phrase, right? And then it goes to, I knew you were trouble when you walked in, right? <laughs> and then all of me loves all of you. And then working nine to five, because it's five o'clock somewhere, right? I mean, it just kind of keeps going, right? Well, there was a, there was a song uh, a few years back by Toby Keith. And the lyrics of that song probably describe my life too much. Uh, and hopefully it doesn't describe it as much today, but there's still occasions when it does. And maybe it describes your life a little bit as well. But in this song, he says, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I want to talk about me, right? Maybe that doesn't describe you. Maybe it describes somebody you know. Don't punch them if you're sitting next to them. Um, but, but it's true that, that occasionally we will get a mindset that kind of says, if I could get everything I wanted, man, I'd be happy. I mean, if I could just get, if I could get people just to think like me, 
and I could just get everything I want in life, then I really would have joy. But has that really ever been your experience? Because research shows and study after study concludes that it's just the opposite. In fact, studies have been conducted and show that the most self-centered, me-centered, all-about-me kind of people tend to be the most miserable people. And the other side of that is those who are selfless, those who uh, are willing to put the needs of others ahead of their own, those people tend to be the healthiest, the happiest, and that live the most joy-filled kind of life, which really points to what Paul is going to talk about in this passage today as he talks about that real joy comes from being second. Real joy comes from putting the needs of others ahead of your own and selflessly trying to meet other people's needs before you meet your own needs. And in chapter 2 of the book of Philippians where we'll be, and here's what Paul says in, in verse 3. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. These two things are absolute joy killers. These two things, when they're a part of your life and they're a part of your relationships, they will absolutely kill your joy and kill the relationships you're involved in. And they both carry this this connotation of competition. Like, like I've got to get ahead. I've got to win at all costs. And if I have to step on people along the way, then so be it, because I've got to rise. I've got to get ahead in life, and I've got to win. It, it, it's, it's like you take on the motto of the, the, the famous philosopher and, and theologian, Ricky Bobby, when he says, if you ain't first, you're last. And while we laugh at that, a lot of us feel that way, right? Because somewhere along the line, someone told us that if you're in second place, second place is first place of the losers. And so we can't be worse than first place. We've got to win. We've got to win. And when that, and, and, and competition's great in, in sports and games, but in life and in relationships, when you're always trying to one-up another person to make a name for yourself and win at all costs, those things will kill your relationship and they will kill the joy in your life. He says, do not, you know, selfish ambition, vacancy, got to get rid of those. But, but rather, he says, in humility, value others, consider others better than yourselves. And that phrase, the value others, it's really a phrase that means place a high price tag on people's lives. In other words, stop putting people on the clearance racks of your life. And place a high price tag on their worth and their value. Instead of, you know, devaluing them and trying to elevate yourself, push them ahead of you. Put their needs ahead of your own. He goes on in verse 4 and he says, Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. That phrase there, look out. The New Testament's written in the Greek language. And the, the Greek word there for that phrase, look out, is the word scopus. It's where we get the word scope from. It's, it's like a scope on a rifle or a telescope. It's meant to look at things that are far away and bring them in close. 
And what he's saying is, don't just give a passing glance at people's needs, but zoom in on what's going on in their life. Zoom in on their needs and try to find a way to meet their needs before you try to meet your own. Elevate the value of that person. Quit, quit looking at this thing like I've got to win and I've got to elevate my own status, but elevate the value of that person and seek to meet their needs. Zoom in on their needs and try to meet their needs ahead of your own. He says this is the pathway to experiencing real joy in your life. Now, when you look at the life of Jesus, he, he's the best person to models uh, not only this, this kind of lifestyle, but he taught his disciples how to do that as well. In fact, in the, in the gospel, in the gospel of Mark, you got in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they describe the life and ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 10, there's an occasion there where the disciples, and I mean, by this time in the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is, is, is just about reached that rock star status. I mean, everywhere he goes, there are crowds of people everywhere. And, and the disciples are feeling this, okay? Like the disciples are in the entourage, you know? And so they're like, yeah, step back, step back. We're coming, th- I mean, he's coming through. But, we, you know, it's, it's we're feeling this. We're feeding off of all the, the energy of the crowds and we're feeling it. And they were in this upper room getting ready to have dinner together when an argument breaks out among the disciples, the guy sitting around the table. And they're arguing about who was going to be the most prominent in Jesus' kingdom? See, they, they viewed Jesus as a Messiah that was going to come in, not the, not the kind of Messiah that we know him to be, but, but the kind of Messiah that was going to go in and establish his kingdom, establish his rule, and kick the Romans out and reinstitute the golden t- age of, of, of Israel. Uh, back in the time of King David and those guys, and he was going to come in and take, with, take on the, the, the throne with authority and with strength. And so they're sitting around going, now, now when, you, you know, when you rise to power, when you power up on these Romans, I want to be the one sitting on your right, and you can be the one sitting on your left. And so they're getting in this argument. No, I'm going to be the one sitting on the right. All of these things going around with Jesus right there in the room listening to all this. Can you imagine? And Jesus finally calls a timeout. Like, guys, guys, listen. And he shares with them four words. I think these four words need to be four words that we're constantly reminded of on a daily basis of their need in our lives. And here's the way it rolled out in in Mark chapter 10, verse 42. It says, Jesus called them together and said, listen, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's saying, these guys, you see it, you see it all around you. These guys that are in authority are in power they use their, their power and their authority to their advantage. They lord it over. They walk around. They make sure everybody knows who's in charge. And they use those things for their own advantage. And then he says in the very next verse, he says those four words. He says, not so with you. Not so with you. You are to be different. You are not to take your cues from what you see of the people in authority around you. You are to be different because there's something in life that's greater than authority. And he comes around to it. He says in the next verse, he says, Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That just, it doesn't work, right? It's just that oxymoron kind of thing. I'm going to be great, I'll serve. I'm going to be king, I'll be a slave. It's like it doesn't even go together. 
And he says this, he says, For even the Son of Man, which is a reference to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He said, guys, listen to me. You see the example of everyone in authority out there. And they walk around and they use their authority for their own advantage. But there's something greater than authority. And that's influence. And you don't get influence by lording it over people. You get influence by the way you serve people. By the way you put their needs ahead of your own. You can have authority and you can command a few people to do this or do that. Or... You can gain influence and you can change the world. But it won't come through lording your power over people. It won't come by you powering up on people. It'll come by you being a servant. And as you serve people, you gain influence in their life. See, Jesus understood the way the system worked in that particular day. And, and, and Paul understood and these, these, this group of Christians he's writing to in Philippi, he understood how the system worked. And they did too. Because Philippi was a prized Roman colony. It, it, was, a, it was a place where it was a big city. Uh, and it was a place that the, the Romans, had, had, when they took over from the Greeks, had, had Romanized this place. And man, it was a great uh, place for uh, people that had been in, in, in positions of authority in Rome. How they had settled in, in Philippi. And so they could see how the system worked. And, and this is going to be amazing. I'm going to describe a little bit to you, but I think you're going to be floored by it. Because they had a system where the, the value and worth of people were judged by where they were on the social hierarchy or the social ladder. Like, like they judged people's value based on where you fell out on the, the ladder, the hierarchy in life. So, so for instance, they had... At the very top rung of the ladder, you had the royals. And the royals, these were the, the people that they viewed themselves as a cut above everyone else. In fact, some of them, we're talking about the Caesars and, and people like that, some of them viewed themselves as actual deity. They were cut above everyone else. No one came close to being like the royals. But then right underneath them, uh, the, the, the very next level down, was the Senate. This was an all-boys club. 600 men. The most powerful in the, in the Roman Empire. They made all the rules. They were the wealthiest. They controlled all the money. Now think about it. Think about some society where the wealthiest people get elected and make all the rules. Can you imagine something like that? That's what this was like, the Senate. And then right underneath there, the next rung was the equestrians, equestrian class. Well, now, what animal do you think was associated with the equestrian class? Yeah, turtles. Uh, no, it was, it, was, it was horses. It was horses. Uh, these guys, they, they controlled the transportation of the day. They bought and sold horses, stallions, studs, which was the main source of transportation. They were very powerful. They were very wealthy. These are the top three classes. They were, this, this made up what was called the patrician class. The top three classes in the social lineup of the Roman Empire. 2% of the Roman Empire was constituted in these three groups. Upper class, wealthiest, most powerful. And then the plebeian class, 
was the next three groups. And the plebeian class, that, that, that's just the lower class. That's just everybody else. 98% of the people fell in that. The very next rung, first part of that class, were citizens of the Roman Empire. Citizens had basic rights as citizens of the empire. They, they could buy and sell land. They had a right to, uh, you know, due process if they were charged for uh, breaking a law. I mean, they had your basic rights uh, as a citizen there. But then beneath them was the freedmen. And these were people that... Uh, they didn't quite have the same rights as citizens of the Roman Empire. These were, by and large, um, foreigners who were living in the Roman Empire, like the Jews who lived there. Uh, they weren't really citizens, and they didn't have quite as many rights. They had some of the basic human rights, but not really rights as citizens of the Roman Empire. And then last, the very lowest rung, were the slaves. And in the Roman Empire, these people were treated not even with human dignity. Uh, these people were considered to be property. And it still blows my mind that a society would allow people to be treated worse than their cattle. And I think that's a scourge that still impacts our country. Can you imagine... Living in a society where the value and worth of people were based on where you fell out on this ladder. Can you imagine being something like that? It's just crazy, right? It's mind-blowing. And then everything, you know, everything that, that people lived for was to go up the rungs of the ladder. Like if, I, if this year, if I can just go up one more rung, man. I got more things that I can get. I got more of life that I can accrue. And man, it's just going to get better. And every rung I go up, I'll be happier and have more joy. And so people lived for going up the ladder, working my way, working my way up the ladder. In fact, uh, there was a Roman term for it. It was called uh, cursus honorum, which means basically the race for honor. I'm, I'm going up. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to elevate my status in life. Trying to increase all that I can get. Going up the rungs of the ladder. We have the same thing uh, in, our, in our culture. It's called cursus ratus, the rat race. And so we try to do the same kind of thing, right? And so they're saying, man, if I could just go. And everything in society reinforced these, these, these classes of people. Like... <clears throat> Banquets. People would attend banquets. And their place of seating at the banquet, depending on what class you fell into. Higher class, better seating. Can you imagine something like that happening? The Colosseum, sporting events, the games. The seats were assigned based on your status on the hierarchy, the ladder. You know, like they had luxury boxes and then corporate boxes right and then you had season ticket holders and then general admission just as you went on down the list right and then the people that couldn't even afford that they were out tailgating in the parking lot listening to everybody inside and so I mean can you imagine just a, a society right where where seats were assigned based on your status in life right your worth crazy the the the, the way people traveled 
you are judged by your mode of transportation. What society would do something like that? What, what you wore. Now see, togas, it, it wasn't just John Belushi and, and singing Louie Louie, that other people wore those as well. Togas were for Roman citizens. You had to at least be a Roman citizen to wear a toga. Anything from this point up, you could wear a toga. And how they do, differentiated between what classes is based on the colors that were woven into your toga. Different colors represented a different uh, class of person. Different la- uh, rung on the ladder that you read. Can you imagine judging people based on the clothes they wear? And your worth or your value, you know, being based on whether or not you bought things from the outlet or no-name stuff or, you know, you can actually afford the brands. How, how, what kind of society would ever be like that, right? Can you imagine something like that? I know it's mind-blowing. In fact, everyone worked to try to go up the ladder and increase their status. But if you ever fail, it it would take years to go up. I mean, years and years and years of working. But it would take a short period of time to fall. And it was tragic. In fact, the Romans had a word that described when a person had gone all the way up and had fallen. And that word, when translated to English, is our word humility. See, humility in the Roman Empire was not a virtue. Humility was a tragedy. And no one wanted to be described as humble. Because that meant you were somewhere and now you're nowhere. You were somebody, now you're a nobody. And then Jesus came along. And he said, not so with you. Not so with you. Because humility is not... A tragedy. Humility is the beginning of a rise toward greatness. To be great, you must descend. To be great, you must serve. Because greatness is not based on all that you can acquire in life. Greatness is based on all that you can give in life. Humility still gets a bad rap, even in our culture at times. Because it's misunderstood. You, you, you think to be humble, you've got to have this kind of, you know, poor pitiful me attitude. I can't really look anybody in the eye and can't really stand up for myself. There's nothing about humility, the virtue of humility, that's anything like that. In fact, uh, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, even when I'm thinking less of myself, I'm still thinking about me. Humility says, stop thinking about you altogether. Become more others-centered instead of self-centered. In fact, most humble people don't even realize they're humble because they're never focused on themselves. They're focused on meeting other people's needs. They never sit back and go, oh, let me assess me. Humility. Focusing on the needs of other people. See, Paul is saying... Jesus said, not so with you. Paul is saying, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Look to their interest. If you want to understand 
how to gain influence, if you want to understand how to experience real joy in life, it doesn't come by the things that you can accumulate for yourself. It comes by the way you give back to other people and serve. That's where real joy finds. And it's crazy. You look it up. Study after study, even in our 21st century, concludes the same thing. And if you want to experience real joy and happiness in life, it comes as a result of you giving back and giving your life away. Now, Paul understands that that's a difficult thing for us as human beings. It's difficult to do on a consistent basis. Like, I mean, we might do that occasionally, but our default's always going to be back to want to talk about me, want to talk about, I, you know, it's always going to be, I need to meet my needs. I need to make sure that I am being taken care of. Okay, well, we'll go over here and serve a little bit, but I want to make sure that I get my stuff. That's our default. Paul understands that, which is why at the end of this passage, he gives the greatest example that's ever been of humility and selfless, sacrificial living. And that's the example of Jesus Christ. And here's what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Take on the same mindset that Christ had. In other words, this is an active thing that you do. You don't just wake up and just kind of float into it. You know, it's actively saying, I want to be this way today. I want to live this kind of life. I want to have the same mindset that Jesus had. Well, what is that mindset? Looks well, a good thing you're asking. He goes on. Verse 6, he says, who, Jesus, who, being in very nature God, and that phrase, very nature God, it means that through and through, his essence is God. Not that he had God-like qualities and characteristics. Not that he kind of seemed God-like. He was God through and through, 100%. In very essence, God but did not consider equality with God something to be used, to be grasped for his own advantage. In other words, Jesus is fully, 100% God in the flesh, but never once felt he needed to throw down the God card. That's why you've got 30 years of him living that you don't really know anything about. I mean, he got a couple of occasions when he was around the age of 12, but that's about it. Now, if I had been God, I, you'd probably hear a lot more about me. But you hear nothing. Why? Because Jesus never felt the need to throw down the God card. In his three-year ministry that we find in the Gospels, there's never a time when he's going, hey, you know what? All right, I'm done with this. I'm, I'm, I'm God now. I'm going to take care of business. Now, you don't ever see that. Though he was fully 100% God, I don't have to use that for my advantage it goes on in verse 7 listen what it says rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant in other words he emptied all that he is he emptied into becoming a servant the nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross God, fully, 100%, left the trappings of heaven, the comforts of heaven, being worshipped and adored in heaven, to come into this world, to break the time and space continuum, to come into this world, to be born as a baby in a stable, 
with cow manure. No pomp and circumstance. And he strike up the band. Nobody was there to warmly greet him. Lived basically in obscurity. Never traveled more than about 100 miles from his home. Was raised as a Jewish carpenter in the lower class of people in Nazareth, which was a town on the other side of the tracks. Because nothing good ever came from Nazareth. He took on the very nature of a servant and became obedient even to death. And some people ask, well, who killed Jesus? Answer simple, nobody. He willingly laid his life down. You don't think he could have called 10,000 angels to come and wipe everybody out, take over Rome, do whatever he wanted to? He could have easily done that. But he said, no one takes my life from me. I laid down my life as a ransom for many. That's why in the book of Hebrews, he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy set before him? The joy was you, was me. The relationship with us, knowing that this was the only way for humanity to establish a right relationship with God the Father was for him to lay down his life. And that joy was before him. And he laid his life down willingly. No one forced him onto a cross. No one forced him to be beaten and scourged. He did that. And so what does it say about him? Therefore... Anytime you see therefore in the scripture, you ask, what's it there for? It points back to what you just read. All of these things that he willingly did and gave up his life for. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He laid down his life. And God the Father raised him, raised him from the grave and exalted him above everything so that the only means of salvation is through the one who gave his life for you and for me. The only way that really impacts us is for us to personally understand that Jesus didn't just do that for the world. He did it for me. And Paul points to Jesus and says, this is the example of what it looks like to live a life that puts other people first. That puts the needs of others ahead of his own. Because of the joy that was set before him. That's the path to real joy. And for us to look at that and for us to look at him as an example and to try to follow that example, we, we can do that a little bit, but it's tough to fake that. You can't carry that on for very long without being exposed. In 1992, I was a, uh, I was a youth pastor at, at a church in Dallas. And that summer, we did a mission trip over to Barcelona, Spain, uh, during the 92 Summer Olympics. 
And we were doing various things around Barcelona. But one of the things that we did, we put this program on called A Night with the Stars. And essentially, you had 75, 100 Olympic athletes who are Christ followers, who all came together to say, we, you know, we represent all of these various countries, but we represent Jesus as our Savior. And the, the, the night began with each one of them walking across the stage, announcing into the microphone their name and the country that they represent in the Olympics and that they're Christ followers. Well, before the program began, I was backstage and just meeting some of them and just talking to some of them. I mean, how many chances do you get to just hang out with Olympians, right? And so I'm backstage meeting, them, and I don't know, somewhere along the way, I don't know why necessarily, but I decided to pretend like I was an Olympian. <laughs> and it was working. I mean, I, I, I was talking. Now, that could have been a language barrier. Okay. But, but they, they were going along with this. Like, like I, I was fooling them, right? And they're asking me about different events and things, and I'm just making stuff up going, I don't even know if that sounds right, you know, and just saying all this kind of stuff, but they were tracking with it, okay, great, you know, and just carrying on conversation. You know, at some point, you're, you're kind of reaching that place, like your, your knowledge of this whole thing is fairly limited, and so you're going, ah, somewhere, I'm probably going to have to say, ah, I'm just kidding, or whatever. Well, about that time, the program begins, and... I'm noticing I'm backstage, we're all in a line, you know, and, and, and so there's this moment of, you know, Scott, do you keep the charade going or, or do you bail and, you know, back out, you know, find a reason to dismiss yourself from the line and I, I, I kept it going and um, so I proudly walked across, this is being broadcast to millions of homes throughout Europe, okay. I proudly walked across the stage to the microphone, Scott Rambo, USA. For a moment, I was an Olympic athlete. I was. It was awesome. Um, now, they, they never saw me in the Olympic Village. They never saw me out the track. You know, they didn't see me anywhere else but just on that stage. So, right, there's only a certain amount of Olympic athlete that I could get away with. I could only fake it so long, right? But I was an Olympic athlete for a moment. You're welcome. <laughs> but see, that happens with us as we try to live the kind of life that's modeled by Jesus. Which is why when it comes to Jesus, it was never about imitation. It was always about inhabitation. It was always about Jesus coming to reside within us. That the only means that we really have of living that kind of life is for our life to be empowered by His Spirit living within us. You, can't, you can only fake that so long. But Jesus and Paul both tell us that if you can lock in on this mindset, that the more I serve people, the more I place a high value on the lives of others. And the more I seek to meet their needs as opposed to mine, the more joy I will experience in life and the better my relationships will be. And the only way to really do that 
is to live a life that's surrendered to Jesus. But in Jesus, not only do we have an example to follow, but we have the strength, the courage, and the power to carry it out. And that's my prayer for all of us. Let me pray for us, okay?